Sports Talk New York with your hosts, Mark Rosenman and A.J. Carter. Sports Talk New York is sponsored in part by Prince Associates, Send in the Clowns, The Phoenix Tube Company, CelebrityTrips.com, The Law Firm of Decalator Cohen and DePrisco, Solomon Jewelers, and Relish Restaurant of Kings Park. Here are your hosts. Mark and AJ. Joining us now is the man who is one of only 108 recipients of the Lester Patrick Trophy, which is awarded for the personnel who provide outstanding service to hockey in the United States. No matter which of the New York Tri-State area teams you root for, you probably have spent more time with him than most of your family members, as he can be seen beside Al Trotwick during MSG hockey intermissions for the New York Islanders, New Jersey Devils, and New York Rangers on MSG and MSG+. He also provides general hockey analysis on MSG and writes columns for the network's website. In 2009, he began hosting a feature five for Fischler on Hockey Night Live, which lists his top five and random hockey topics. In the, eight, in the 1980s, he was a hockey commentator for for the radio show on CBC Radio in Canada. In addition to broadcasting, he has authored or co-authored well over 100 books. I could say I've probably read about 90 of them on hockey, baseball, and even a few on the New York subway system. I I defy you or anyone on the planet to find a more knowledgeable or a person with greater recall of events in the NHL than him. It is a pleasure to welcome the man, the legend, the maven, Mr. Stan Fischler to WLIA Sports Talk New York. Welcome, Stan, and happy Passover. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Great. So there's a Yiddish word that my parents used a lot to explain things when I was growing up, and that word was beshert. And if you ever write your autobiography, I think that should be the title. For those of you that don't understand Yiddish out there, beshert loosely means it's meant to be. Your mom, Malka Devara, takes you to your first baseball game at age five. Two years later, your dad, Benjamin, is taking you to see Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. But emerging from the subway, you walk out into a torrential downpour at 50th Street and 8th Avenue. Can you tell our audience what happens next? Well, I was very intent on seeing Snow White when I was told by my father we weren't going to, and he was going to take me to a hockey game. I started to cry. My father never gave in (laughs) to that kind of stuff, so he yanked me by the and then he took me inside Madison Square Garden, the old one on 8th Avenue between 49th and 50th. And I was determined to get even because I didn't know what the heck hockey was. So I immediately rooted for the team that <laughs> was against his team. In those days, the Rangers farm team, the Rovers, played at the Garden on Sundays. Uh, my team won. I went to school the next day at PS 54. And my teacher had a show-and-tell thing, and I did a goalie. I got an A, and I said, hockey ain't too bad. (laughs) Saturday, he took me to see Snow White. Sunday, we went to another hockey game, and I never stopped going. What was it about the game of hockey that grabbed you so? Obviously, you had gone to the Dodgers, but the passion, something about the game ignited a passion in you. What was it? It was the uh, whole ambiance of the garden, uh, seeing... uh, the ice, although at that time the ice was very uh, much brown-colored. The ice we see now has been, uh, they add something to make it white. The colors of the uniforms, the speed, the hitting, and uh, pretty soon I began to enjoy the fights. Uh, the whole picture, and of course the, <coughs> the art of goaltending was much different then. It was much uh, more artistic. No goalies wore masks. They had very little protective equipment other than the uh, pads. 
Uh, I loved watching goalies then. It's interesting because 15 years after that first game, you actually started to work in that very building. Uh, after getting out of Brooklyn College in 1954, you start your career in hockey as a Ranger publicist, then as a print reporter in New York and Toronto for our younger listeners out there. Long before Twitter and the Internet and well before the insider role became a must for any network, you were the first to report on the inner workings of pro hockey, giving to NHL fans what Peter Gammons, Buster Only, offered to baseball and what Adam Schefter and Jay Glazer contribute to the NFL. Take us back to those pre-internet days and how you would have to go about your business to get those scoops. Well, getting scoops, uh, now I can reveal it. I certainly wouldn't have then. I had a very good friend who uh, worked in Buffalo, his name was Charlie Barton. He was Jewish, uh, and he was uh, never doing NHL stuff because he was he was writing about the uh, American Hockey League, and uh, he had been doing it for a long time. And he had very good sources, one of whom was Emil Francis, who had become the GM of the Rangers. And when Francis was running the Rangers, which was for quite a while. Uh, Charlie would hear things, <laughs> sometimes directly from the cat, Francis, and sometimes secondhand. And uh, one day he called me up and he said, I got a scoop for you. And of course, I didn't know whether I could rely on him because I had never used him before. Uh, but I took a gamble. I was running writing for the Journal American then. That was Hearst's evening paper. And it uh, turned out that Charlie's scoop was right on. And uh, from that point on, and it wasn't regularly, it was whenever he really got something good. Could have been trade, stuff like that. Uh, Charlie bat a thousand with me. And um, so that was, that was one uh, enjoyable aspect. Of course, the whole way of reporting was different. There were no uh, press lounges or press rooms. At the end of a game, you went into the dressing room. There'd be 18 guys sitting in front of their lockers, and uh, you went over to any player you wanted to, no matter if he was a superstar or a third line, and you could interview him at will. There was no interference from PR people or anything like that. And, it was, uh, and there was no place for players to hide, which is what they do now uh, many times. So it was a whole different thing. And then since I was writing for an afternoon paper, my job was to get uh, quotes. So, and I had more time to write. I could uh, do the dressing room and then go up to the press box and write my story. It was all written on, uh, typed on uh, Western Union paper because I'd give it to the uh, Western Union operator and he'd send it to, uh, to my sports desk. And uh, it was a whole different world than it is now. Now, one of the differences, and I know this having worked for an afternoon paper that became a morning paper, uh, is the afternoon papers allowed you to have more features. The morning papers, you get the score, get the game in, more depth than the afternoon papers. So you get a chance to do features for the papers. One of them, you once actually said, I want to see what it's like to play goalie against the Rangers, and you had Roger Gilbert take some shots. Can you tell our audience a little bit about that? Well, that was when uh, the Rangers had two goalies vying for the number one spot. Uh, the one who got it was Eddie Jockerman because he was the uh, Emil Francis favorite. Emil had dealt five players to Providence to get Jockerman. So uh, the other one was Cesar Maniago. But Jockerman wasn't playing well, and uh, I wrote it, and he was angry at me. 
And um, what happened was, simultaneously, I'd requested from the Rangers the right to go into the nets in Ranger uniform wearing the goalie equipment. No mask, I just had my glasses on, actually. And uh, have their best player, their best offensive player, Roger Gilbert, take shots at me, ten shots at me. And uh, they agreed. Actually, uh, I wore Cesar Maniago's goalie equipment. And uh, Emil did a, uh, sorry, uh, Rod did a couple of deeks. He was doing all kinds of stuff. And he scored nine out of nine. And on the last shot, he took a wrist shot from about 15 feet out. And I guessed that it was going to my left. And I threw my, my arm out and to grab it <clears throat> or try to grab it. And when I threw the arm out, the glove flew off because it was too big on me. And it hit the puck in midair and knocked it safely into the corner. So uh, the glove made <laughs> the last save. I, used oh, to, wow. I said I did 9 out of 10. Do you have video of that anywhere? Or film? No, or but film? I have pictures. I That's... have photos of me uh, being faked out by Rod. That's amazing. Uh, back to 1973, and again, I'll use that word, but share it. You had been in print your entire life when a Boston broadcaster named Eddie Andelman recommends you to do games for the WHA New England Whalers. What was your first reaction to that idea, and how did that come about? Well, Eddie had a feud going with the Boston Bruins. You could call it a hate. And it was at the same time that I was having a lot of problems with the Bruins. And... Uh, Eddie was friendly with the guy who was launching the, uh, the world hockey team in Boston, the New England Whalers, Howard Baldwin. And he suggested to Howard, since the Bruins and the Whalers were rivals, that I do the color for the Whalers because uh, I was notorious by that time in Boston not liking the Bruins. So I kind of fit in. Problem was, I didn't really want to go into television. I loved writing. And I thought television, if you don't mind my saying so, I thought television at that time was beneath me. But Eddie kept saying he could get this fabulous amount of money, which of course I knew he couldn't get. So I said, look, Eddie, I know you're not going to get it, and I don't want to do this anyhow, but go ahead and try. And sure enough, he came up with the dough. And I couldn't turn it down. It was way too much to turn down. And that's how I got into television, very reluctantly. You know, at the time, really, you, you're of an ear with this real animosity between print reporters and broadcast journalists. And, you know, people broadcast, print people put broadcast journalists who are trying to steal their jobs, do all sorts of things to try and keep them from doing their work. So how hard was it for you to make the transition from being a print guy to being a broadcast person? Well, once I started doing television, I no longer was, uh, you know, covering uh, a team as I had covered the Rangers for the Journal American. So my allegiance uh, switched 100% over to the TV side. And what would happen then, less so now, but still, the, uh, the print guys used to uh, resent the fact that we were there with cameras and were getting in their way. And there were some nasty uh, pushing and shoving uh, episodes, uh, very nasty. Uh, I never actually saw guys come to blows, but I heard 
uh, elsewhere, it did happen. And, of course, under, having been a print guy, I understood what they were coming to, because when you got a TV guy doing an interview that's going to be aired right then and there, as opposed to something that would be printed the next day, of course uh, the print guys would be resentful, and they were. You know, I looked at, you know, looked up the information about when you did the work for, for New England, and I saw somewhere that you actually worked with your wife, Shirley, during that season. It, and I haven't been able to find anything more about that. So did you work the telecast with Shirley? And if so, yeah, I'm Shirley already had done a lot of hockey writing with me and uh, independently. And uh, she had a terrific grasp of the game. We got married in 1968. So by this time, this is a, a good uh, six years later, uh, she was uh, very smart about the game. And when they hired me to do the Whalers, they also hired her. And we did some games together. We did one game uh, uh, against the New York Raiders, the Whalers against the Raiders at the Garden. And uh, she did some games on her own in Canada. I know she did, was in Winnipeg, uh, Toronto, and she was good. But uh, she also had this idea to open a women's bookstore down in the village. So when it came the next season, which was 74-75, I continued doing the Whalers, and uh, she retired from it to run her bookstore. It's interesting because, I, you know, I don't think anyone's ever done that since, nor do I think anyone, a husband and wife, have done that before. I'm really surprised that that doesn't get a, a lot more ink. Um, the, the following season, I'm not going to use that word again because we'll be confused with being way too ethnic here, but 74-75, <laughs> right at the end of the season, you get a call from the great Marty Glickman asking if you'd like to do an NHL game on television. It was an Islander game. Uh, and it had some pretty big significance, right? Yeah, it was the game that got the Islanders their first playoff berth, which was uh, March 75. And um, as everybody who follows hockey knows, that they scored a huge upset in the first round. It was two out of three. They beat the Rangers two out of three. Uh, on that uh, famed overtime goal, uh, J.P. Parisi uh, from Jude Duran. And uh, that put them in the second round against Pittsburgh. And the Penguins went up three games to nothing. And then the uh, Islanders did what only one other team had ever done in the playoffs, which was the 42 Leafs. Uh, they won the next four in a row, which was a hell of a story. Then they went up against the Flyers. They were one round away from the final. And they went up against the Flyers, and the Flyers won the first three games. And the Isles came back, and they won the next three. And game seven, the Flyers won in Philly. And uh, that was the end of the Cinderella story. But by that time, they had banked so many new fans, and they, were, they had become a very sought-after team. And Chuck Dolan, who was running the uh, Baby Network, was able to get a contract that uh, gave us home games throughout the season. And uh, it was wonderful. I was working with Spencer Ross. He was a wonderful play-by-play uh, -play guy. And I've been doing Islanders ever since. 
Amazing. Like you said, you're hired for MSG for a run of 43 years, which will come to an end at the end of this season uh, as you're retiring from television. Cable TV was in its infancy in 1975. MSG's coverage of hockey has evolved so much over the four-plus decades that you've been involved with it. What to you has been the biggest change in the way we watch hockey these days? Well, there's so much available electronically. Last night I was at the Rock watching the Islanders play the Devils, and when you go to the Rock, one of the first things that overwhelms you is the size of the message board. It's it's bigger than houses. It's just gigantic. And they show so much of the action that you might not see at the first look, It's it's uh, and from different angles. Uh, so the electronic aspect of the game has been revolutionized. It revolutionized the game, and it's revolutionizing officiating. Of course, there are a lot of uh, qualms about that, but the fact of the matter is we're in the 21st century, and this stuff has become essential. Uh, in the old days, it was the referee on the ice, one referee, and there were gold judges directly behind, directly behind the nets. So they could see it was strictly the gold judge who decided whether it was a goal or not. Of course, the gold judge had a button to push. And the nets were different. The nets had a lot more fabric so that when the puck went in, if it was shot in, it would be held. It wouldn't bounce right out the way it does now. Uh, so you really didn't need any replays to see whether or not it was a goal. It was pretty evident. And uh, the game, of course, was much slower. But not uh, that's not said negatively, because sometimes it gets too fast for its own good now. But it was, a, uh, it was different. It was a different game. You know, you talked a little about the experience of being in the arena and watching it with the video stuff. I think another big change is the, the experience of watching it at home. And goes right into your wheelhouse with the greater emphasis, not so much on the action because it's there, but what happens before the game, between periods, and after the game. Maybe talk a little bit how that has changed, how much more elaborate that's all become. Well, when we began, and for many years, we never had a pregame show or a postgame show. We showed the game, and that was the end of it. My, re my recollection is that we started doing uh, pregame and postgame in 1980, uh, 1979-80, the first year that the Islanders uh, won the, the Cup. And uh, that has evolved uh, everywhere uh, uh, in the game. Uh, and, and, of course, now there's the NHL Network, which is uh, it's, it's spreading its wings pretty much. Uh, that didn't exist. Uh, as a matter of fact, the uh, sideline stuff, what we call sidebars, hardly existed then. Very few features. Uh, this grew, it grew with the game. I mean, it grew with expansion, 6 to 12. Now we got a 32nd team coming in when Seattle comes up with the dough. So it's another world. You know, 
for those of you that are just tuning in, if you're a hockey fan, you know that voice immediately. We're speaking to the Maven Stan Fischler. Your name is synonymous with hockey, but when you were working for the New York Journal American, you covered the Brooklyn Dodgers World Series in 1955. 1956, you're at Ebbets Field for Game 7. You've done pro football, the, the New York football giants. You've done books on baseball. You've done books on, on the subway, which AJ wants to talk to you a little bit about. But what is your most memorable non-hockey sports moment or player that you covered? Well, uh, being a native Brooklynite, uh, the Dodgers winning the series the way they did in 55 after many, many heartbreaks. We had the heartbreak of 41 when Mickey Owen dropped the third to a missed the third strike. That would have won a game. That would have put the Dodgers in great momentum, maybe win the series. And then there were the uh, whippings that we took from the Yankees post-World War II. You know, in almost succession, it was heartbreaking. And uh, then for Johnny Padres to win that game, a guy from New York State up the Adirondacks, that was a phenomenal event. Uh, phenomenal and uh, tragic was the follow-up in uh, the following year when uh, I was at, I covered that game seven. Yogi Berra hit home run in the first, home run in the third. Game was over by the fourth inning. It was, and it was cold. It was a terrible, terrible day. It was uh, one of the worst uh, experiences I ever had covering a game because I was rooting for Brooklyn. Amazing. And I ran into uh, Yogi at his museum about a dozen years ago when I had a book, a book fair there. And I got there early, and Yogi was standing there, a great guy, guy. I knew him well. And we schmoozing, and I said, you know, Yogi, I covered that game in 56. And uh, I have to tell you, I said, you know, you broke my heart, and you broke the heart of two million other Brooklynites with that pair of home runs. And he looks at me, and he says, you know, Stan, I'm still not sorry. Ada, <laughs> <laughs> you had a question yeah, about yes, the subway. question. So from the time you were three years old, you had a love affair with the New York City subways. So your mother took your first on your first subway ride. But what made you decide over the course of all the books you've written, all the things done with hockey and being a hockey historian, to also become a New York City subway historian? Well, the uh, easy answer is that from the time I ra rode the subway for the first time, uh, I loved it. Uh, they built the uh, subway line right under my house on 582 Marcy Avenue between Myrtle and Vernon which is the G line now, Brooklyn-Queens Crosstown line, which is the only line that doesn't go to Manhattan. The uh, station, Myrtle-Willoughby Station, was right directly under the house. On the next corner, just a half a block away, was the Myrtle Avenue elevated line, which was a wonderful ride. Myrtle Avenue well had cars that dated back to 1910. They had open platforms. You could stand on the platform, especially on milder days. It was like nothing, you know, it's it's hard to explain to people now because it, it, yeah. it, uh, it would, you know, they would never allow this. Uh, but uh, and so, uh, and I had trolleys. I love trolleys. We had trolleys all around us. We had the Nostrand Avenue and the Loma Street trolley on Nostrand. We had the Myrtle Avenue trolley. Half a block away from my house, we had the Tompkins Avenue trolley, a block from my house. We had the DeKalb Avenue trolley, three blocks, four blocks away. 
surrounded by trolleys, and I love trolleys. So I did a trolley book about Brooklyn trolleys, and, uh, and you know, as I got to be a little bit older, like five or six, used to visit my uh, father's parents in Flatbush, so he would take the Brighton line, and the Brighton line, they had a front window that opened, and there was a, uh, a sort of a side seat just away from the window, and a kid could stand on that and look out the window, just stick his head out the window, and the Brighton Express, that thing flew. It was a, it was really a phenomenal experience that kid can't do today. I mean, not even close because there are none of the windows oh, yeah. in the front <laughs> open, and you can't even get to the front. You can't even. There's not enough room to even move. Yeah. Uh, you know, over the 43 years on MSG, it seems that your allegiances have shifted from team to team. So deep down, which of the three New York tri-state area teams is Stan Fisher's go-to team? Uh, the answer to that is a song. And the song comes from a Broadway musical about 1949 called Finian's Rainbows about Ireland. And the song was, When I'm not near the girl I love, I love the girl I'm near. <laughs> So if I'm doing a Ranger game, as I did many times in the past, I would want the Rangers to win because I knew I was going to do post-game, and who wants to go into a losing room? So I'd root for the Rangers. Same thing with the Islanders, same thing with the Devils. Now, historically, I owe my career to the Rangers because I was a vice president of the fan club, which started in 1950, the Ranger fan club. I got my first paying job in hockey working for the Rangers in 1954, which was a huge, huge boost for me. And uh, I did other, and I worked at the Garden uh, for more than a season. And of course, with the Islanders, I, uh, as you know, I told I, I started doing the games in '75, and I've been through the four Cup years, which was an unbelievable experience, 19 straight playoff series victories. I mean, that'll never be broken, never close. And then, uh, of course, uh, the Rangers, uh, I was, when they won the Cup in 40, I was eight. And, uh, of course, uh, I was there for the 94, particularly the 94 series with the Devils. That was a great, no. great series. So uh, I have to say, when I'm not near the girl I love, I love the girl I'm near. Uh, last night was a toughie. Last night was very tough because I was doing the Islanders most of the all season, but they honored me at the game, and I actually did the Devils telecast. And uh, But I did the Islanders' room. And, uh, of course, as I said, you always want your team to win. But I'm also delighted that the Devils have a shot at the playoffs, which will be the only Met-area team if they get in. And, you know, this will answer even a lot clearer, because you're leaving those three teams to spend more time with, out of doubt, your favorite team. Your two sons, your five grandchildren, who range in age from 9 to 15. I'm thinking maybe the first night of your retirement, I don't know which you know, child you'll be with, so which grandchildren, but I'm thinking maybe 
to buy the DVD of Snow White of the Seven Dwarfs and maybe have it come full circle. <laughs> uh, Great idea. You know, Stan, there's a rule in the press box. There's no clapping in the press box, but AJ and I have to give you a standing ovation, you know, for... for to stand up. Uh, yeah, amazing, amazing run, and, and just so much. I want to thank you so much for your time tonight, but more importantly, thanks for the times that I got to sit and have dinner and talk hockey with you in a press room. All the wonderful books which line my bookshelves, which were a tremendous part of my youth, and most important, you know, for me to be able to hand you a hockey book that I wrote is something I will never, ever forget, and all the support you've given me over the years. I really appreciate it, and I will miss you at MSG. Okay, well, as we say, the vice is versa. <laughs> and I look forward to Bashert, the Stan Fischer story, <laughs> due out in 2019, all right? Okay. Uh, the one, the only, Stan Fischer, the maven.